this is our sixth week on Prayer 2.0. We talked about sacred reading and Lectio Divina to start out, and then we talked about writing down our prayers or drawing our prayers, um, and then we did prayer walking and reciting prayers, and last week we did the examine, which is like a reflective prayer. Um, but today we get to an imaginative type of prayer. Um, you, maybe some of you have seen online, on, I like to put Facebook questions up where I ask people for their input, their responses to random questions that usually deal with the sermon topic of the week. But I asked this week, when is a time that you didn't know what to say? I was trying to see what are some interesting situations in which people say they don't know what to say. And so the most common answer, in which everyone felt very unique in this answer, was I don't know what to say to this post. <laughs> so uh, they're like, I don't know what to say for when is a time that I don't know what to say other than right now. Um, but many other people talked about the loss of a loved one and grief and that kind of situation, which is obviously understandable. People talked about hearing outlandish political conspiracies and saying, I have no idea what to say to that comment. Uh, people, particularly ladies, said they were not uh, ever sure what to say when people asked about their reproductive plans? Do you plan on having kids? When are you planning on having kids? Are you having a kid? Um, all of those in which uh, you're not quite sure how to respond to the people. Um, people mentioned not knowing what to say when someone insults you to your face. Uh, sometimes that was a work setting kind of thing, or maybe it was a church setting for some people. Um, but you don't know how to respond when someone not only talks bad about you, but like actually to you. You're like, oh, what on earth do I do now? People talked about pets, particularly the loss of pets, but also like sometimes they just do the strangest things and you don't know what to do and what to say about it, including opening your front door uh, when you didn't know they could open your front door. Um, and one of my friends talked about uh, not knowing what to say related to sports, that there'd be some new crazy way in which you could lose that you didn't think you could ever lose that way. Uh, and so his favorite example is he's a big Alabama fan. And a few years back, they were kicking a field goal to try to win the game. Um, I think it was tied. They're trying to kick a long field goal to win the game. Instead, someone was standing right in front of the uprights and caught the ball and ran 109 yards for a touchdown with no time left. And you had the emotion from, we were about to win this game to, oh my goodness, how did we just lose this? Um, and I'm sure Lions fans can insert a lot of random memories in which the team has let people down in other unique ways. Um, but I think what happens is, is our scripts that we live by tend to fail us. And so like we're all, we're all used to having, here's the script, when this happens I know I should do X, Y, or Z, or I should say X, Y, or Z. But the scripts we live by often fail us. And so what do we do uh, and what happens when we don't know what script we're supposed to live by? And so many of us have different scripts that we may be aware of, we might not be aware of. Uh, what's professional behavior in the workplace? What's uh, good manners, which again, can be very different ba based on what country you live in and what's proper manners. Uh, people are given all sorts of kind of masculinity or femininity scripts of here's what it means to be a man, here's what it means to be a lady. Um, they, they get uh, political scripts of Here's exactly what it means to be Republican or exactly what it means to be Democratic, that you have to agree on all of these platform points. Uh, people get age-related scripts of, well, they're just a kid, that's how kids act, or, oh, well, you know, 
we should be generous there. Just that old man, you know, they do what they want. And um, we all have these very different scripts. Sometimes that script is what a Christian should do or shouldn't do. Or sometimes that gets heightened to what a preacher should do or shouldn't do. Uh, Beth as the daughter of a preacher and Gwen as uh, our daughter get the, the script of what a preacher's kid should do or shouldn't do. Um, but eventually, like, our scripts fail us, either because they don't handle a situation that we encounter or they interact with a different script in a way that you can't do both scripts at the same time. Um, and we're eventually left wondering, what should we do? What should we say? How do we go forward with our life? And so I think uh, imaginative prayer and using our imagination and our spiritual journey uh, is really a great... Uh, is really visible in Luke chapter 9, which is the, the story we were just read. The story begins with Jesus going out on a mountain to pray, which you could insert every single preacher who's ever lived who said something like, even Jesus went out to pray, so shouldn't we also go out to pray? Yes, we get that. that uh, Jesus prayed, mark that down of, okay, I should probably pray more. Um, but he goes out to pray, and he brings his friends with him, uh, Peter, James, and John. And they go up on the mountain, and they find a place to pray. And then the story gets weird. I'm going to allow the story to be weird. Here's Luke 9, 29 through 32. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. And they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now, I appreciate that the, the text includes the note that Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. Because I can imagine in the story, they're like, wait, what am I seeing? They're rubbing their eyes. What's happening here? Um, and I don't know how many of you may have heard the, uh, I like fun, like bizarre criminal stories that you hear of. Um, I think Jay Leno used to do a skit about like stupid, stupid criminal stories or whatever. Um, well, there were some criminals in Houston. Now, I think it's still a harsh word. There were some people in Houston who said, hey, how about that house over there that's vacant? I think we should smoke in that house. And that's their thinking. They go in the house, and they go in the garage, and they realize they see a tiger. And it's a very, very large tiger. And being good citizens that they were in that moment, they thought, we should call the cops <laughs> because there's a tiger here. And they call the dispatch, and they explain, you know, hey, we probably shouldn't be doing it. We came to smoke. I, I'm sorry, but, like, there's a tiger here. And they're like, are you sure you see a tiger? <laughs> are, you, are you sure you're not hallucinating? Uh, is there really a tiger there? Yeah, I, I think so. And so they came. And there was a thousand pound tiger, like an overfed real tiger. Uh, and I can just imagine them in that experience though. I don't know if I can trust my eyes, but I'm pretty certain I'm looking at a tiger. And so here they are on the mountain and the story is having us imagine uh, they're on the mountain and suddenly these two men appear and it's supposed to be the great prophets of old and Jesus' face is shining differently and suddenly he's wearing dazzling clothes I'm not sure what kind of shop you get the dazzling clothes, but uh, they're, they're, what on earth am I seeing? They're perplexed. And this story has some Christianese language attached to it, the transfiguration. 
uh, which is overly complicating what's happening in the story in our, as far as like, we don't need to use big fancy words if we don't have to, but we like to use them. Um, but all it is is they're having a prayerful experience that was transformative, something changed. And in the Greek of the New Testament, they use the word that we get metamorphosis from. When it goes into Latin, it uses a word that transfiguration comes from it. So it's just, think of a change, a metamorphosis um, that's happening. And so Luke's version of saying that is, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. It's not, I don't think it's probably a well-read passage for us, but uh, it looks like the gospel writers are trying to mimic something from Exodus, uh, where Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He gets to see God. There's a whole thing about, you can't see my face. I'll walk by and you can see me from behind and all of that. Um, but it changes Moses' appearance in the story. And so here in Luke, you have a story of Jesus changing in appearance and encountering Moses while praying to God. And so it, I think it's meant to be reminiscent. Um, but here's what Exodus 34 says. Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and as he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin on his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Uh, but whenever Moses would go to uh, speak before the Lord, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he'd come out, told, he'd tell the Israelites what God had commanded them. And then the Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil on his face back on again until he would go speak with God again. So there's this back and forth about Moses' face shining because of his encounters with God. Now, uh, let's flash forward to the 16th century, the 1500s, a very famous painter and sculptor, uh, uh, Michelangelo. Maybe know them from the, t the Mutant Ninja Turtles is the name. Uh, but Michelangelo, he's a famous uh, Italian sculptor and painter. Uh, pope Julius II commissioned him, hey, I'd like you to make me something for my tomb someday. And he asked him to make a sculpture of Moses. Now, we don't know, like, he doesn't know what Moses looks like. And so what scripts does he have to work from? You know, is Moses a small guy? Is he a tall guy? Is he balding? Is he not? Uh, heavy set? You know, what does he look like? Um, and so he might take the, the scripts of other people who've tried to paint him, also guessing. But kind of interestingly, he paints or he sculpts Moses based on this Exodus 34 text. And there's a quirk in the biblical tradition. In the Hebrew, the word for line shine, shining forth from something can also be translated as horns coming out. And so when the Latin Bible translation happened, they translated this text that Moses had horns come out of his head. And so if you go look at the sculpture, um, it's Moses with horns, two horns coming out of his head. And that's a little quirky and it's a little strange to look at. But maybe it's hard to critique a guy who like 500 years later we're still like talking about his art. Um, but, but he used his imagination to create what Moses might look like. And I appreciate that um, we talked about a, a theologian and, and priest who helped create the examine prayer last week, St. Ignatius. He also created an imaginative type of prayer where you would read a, a book, of the, um, primarily gospel stories, but you'd read a story from the Bible and you would imagine yourself into that story 
imagine all the surroundings. What's it feel like? What's it sound like? Am I close to Jesus? Am I far away? And just kind of, you know, does Jesus talk to me? Does he not talk to me? And imagine yourself into those stories. And so his type of contemplation was very different than a lot of other religious kind of contemplation prayers because often we think about contemplation as stop thinking about things, like be silent, uh, get rid of other thoughts. But instead, Ignatius was trying to say, like, let's imagine things and get creative with the story in our minds so we can encounter God in a new way. And so uh, we might be left with texts like Luke 9, where you think about Jesus in the story, and how do I imagine Jesus interacting with me? How do I imagine myself into these moments that I can't get back to? And I'm not acting like they're historical, like I, I'm not acting like me being there is uh, trying to recreate the historical situation, but in what way can I encounter God uh, imagining myself into the story I'm in? And before I get some practical tips about creating a culture of imagination, I want to point out how important it is for us to have an imagination for ourselves. Because we can spend really good, meaningful time talking about how God has been at work in our lives and how God is at work in our lives. But it's also fruitful to think about how God could be at work in our lives and what might still be, what, what could happen, what, what's a future that's possible. Because I think we all want change for the better. We don't want things to grow. We want to develop. And so we have to imagine somehow we get from where we are to some sort of future spot. And so how do we imagine how God's going to use us? And one of the things that I hope people uh, know about for themselves is that each of us are ministers, that we are all bearers of the light of God, the love of God, to our friend groups, our work groups, our families. And uh, God wants to use our passions, our gifts, our skills to bring about good life change. And there's a lot of people that are doing this well, um, but you can take you know, make knitting groups and crocheting groups, and you can make quilts and have the community of a group of people working on stuff, but you can also give those things to people, make a difference where people get to uh, receive it. You can do fun things like play basketball or tennis or golf or sporting events, things that are naturally competitive, where it seems like I'm against you, but turn them into community building where you are supportive and you get to know each other and you get to have joy and um, build friendships together, uh, read books, watch movies, take photos, listen to music, play music. Like, There's all sorts of ways in which God can use our passions and our skills to bring about kingdom work. Um, and how do we help imagine that for ourselves? That, you know, I have a passion for something, but maybe God could use that in some new way that, that's going to be valuable. And so... I think that that's a personal journey that we all go on, that we all have to discern for ourselves. But I think we also, as a community, go on that journey of how can God use our church, the collection of us, in imaginative new ways to reach our community and make change in our city. And I think that's an important task because we've lost the, uh, the script that churches used to live by where you could expect people to show up every week just because they show up, where uh, you could expect people to know every single biblical story because we just really uh, hone in on Bible trivia knowledge. Um, we, can, we can't expect people um, to just think positively about our faith and our tradition. 
um, a lot of the script doesn't, uh, has changed. And so we have to use our imagination even more about how God might use us. I, I want to point out um, one person who I think could contribute to thinking organizationally about how do we as a community foster creativity. Um, you probably don't know his name just by hearing it, but you know what he's done. Uh, Ed Catmull is the co-founder of Pixar. And I didn't realize this morning when I did, you know, did the sermon this morning, but this is Steve Jobs' birth, would have been his birthday. Uh, but Ed Catmull was a co-founder of Pixar along with Steve Jobs and with another individual. And to think about the level of creativity they needed, they wanted to make completely computer-generated movies in which there wasn't even technology to do that. So you had to make hardware and make software and keep, keep updating, keep changing, all with this plan of eventually being able to make some piece of art that they thought they could do something unique and, and different uh, and imaginative with. And while they made a lot of great technical achievements and great movies, Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, uh, you can go through the list of giant Pixar movies. Um, they thought that it was their organizational culture that helped foster that creativity. And what really made them feel stronger about that was in that same time period that they started making all these movies, Disney was floundering around. They had their giant hits in the early 90s, the Aladdins and Beauty and the Beast and Lion Kings and those movies. And then they had a really hard stretch where they just couldn't make hits in the same way. So Disney buys Pixar, they ask them, can you help run us? Like, can you like take control of this? And instead of replacing everybody and starting over, they changed the culture of the place. And most of all of the same employees stayed working there. And suddenly in the last several years, they start turning out hits of Tangled and Frozen and, you know, Wreck-It Ralph and the other things that you see giant box office numbers for. And there's something powerful in the fact that the people didn't have to change. Like, they were able to create imagination and, and creativity as an organization to a group that was, was having a hard time with it. Um, there's a lot of principles that, that they had, but two that I want to point out. They made it a major goal to create honesty where you could have groups and teams that could just be honest and give true feedback. And what they would notice is, is when they would get early versions of a movie and they'd have a group watch it, in some settings people would say, give feedback and say, you gotta change this, this doesn't work, here's how you change it. And directors would get mad saying, this is my movie, stop telling me this or that. Like, and so this authoritative structure was butting heads with itself. The other situation was, you tell them exactly what they want to hear, and so nobody would be honest with you, and everybody would just um, say what they thought people needed to, wanted to hear. Um, so they created a space in which the, those kind of brain trust groups, those feedback groups, had no authority to actually make the change. Their only function was, we're just going to speak honestly about where we're at and what this looks like and, and just give you the feedback. And it's going to be up to you to do something with that feedback, and we're gonna trust that you actually value making this better. Now, uh, as, as far as prayer goes, there really shouldn't be a, any more ideal time to be honest. Like, I don't know what we're doing if 
you're trying to pray to the creator of the universe and think, maybe I can just like fake something here. Like, I don't, want, I don't have to be real with my emotions or how I actually feel. Like, what is it to not be honest in prayer? And if we want to change and we want to grow, how do we help be honest with ourselves, at least in that spiritual practice of prayer? But also, uh, as a church, of how do, we, how do we not try to create scripts for other people, um, but, but look for how people actually are, the problems they're actually facing, instead of telling them, here's the problem you're facing? Um, how do we uh, take good feedback and listen to our community instead of just assuming um, the stories we want to hear? The other, the other characteristic I want to bring up is a fearless culture. A lot of organizations or communities or churches, the longer you're open, the more likely you are to become fear-averse, where you say, well, you know, this was good enough. Let's keep doing it. And good enough ends up not being good enough. And so for the movie company, it was, okay, well, let's not just make a generic okay thing, but let's make something great. And let's figure out what what can we do to make a new spin on this type of story? What can we do that's beyond what people can even expect or, or try to do? And so as, as churches, we face the trouble of we don't like trying things and failing and feeling, oh, man, I, that didn't work out. But like things, uh, things that are lofty that are worth reaching out for are worth failing for. And you can try again. You know, you can re revisit it, edit it, go a new a new angle on it. Um, but one of the things that I want to say that I appreciate about the city, which I've mentioned a few times and I'll keep mentioning, is um, really you got to reward those who have lofty aspirations. And for us, for me, I can't think of a more lofty aspiration recently than Bright Walls, the mural festival. Here's a group of young people who said, I imagine internationally, people are going to show up in Jackson to make these paintings, to care about our city, to make it brighter, to make it hopeful. And now they're in the scenario in which the, 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 run, the people who run that event are getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails from people all over the world wanting to show up in our city to paint here. Like, and how kind of ludicrous that sounds. Like, people from Japan are just going to want to show up at your doorstep and want to paint for you. You know, like, that's crazy. Uh, but it actually was possible. And, like, how do we help create in ourselves a hopefulness and optimistic, like, reach for something greater? And also, as a community, reach for something even greater, that um, we can be more than just, you know, the good enough. Now, um, while it's important to be honest and courageous in our church and our prayer life, I do want to note that sometimes when our scripts don't work, some people are speechless, but that's usually not Peter. Uh, some people will ramble with whatever they can imagine. And I love that our text kind of has God almost seemingly like cutting him off in this statement. Here's how Luke talks about it. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what they had said. I'm going to pause here. They were talking about what Jesus was going to have to do in this future, and Peter's saying, hey, let's stay where we're at, which is really getting in the way of everything that they had been trying to talk about. 
uh, which is just kind of a, a fun comical thing. But that, that's a true thing, too, that sometimes we have a vision of going to some place, and people then are like, hey, I like where we're at. Let's just, let's just sit here. And the text doesn't let it just sit there, though. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And then the cloud came a vo- from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. So while Peter's spitballing of what you should do, God shows up and says, hey, here's my son, listen to him. <laughs> and as we're kind of quick to speak, like Peter, uh, sometimes you need the reminder of, hey, maybe you need to listen to somebody else for a second. And so how do we listen for God? How do we listen for Jesus at work? and not just kind of ramble to fill the silence. And so uh, the scene ends with the disciples being silent, and it says they don't tell anybody what they saw. Obviously, the stories were counted, so they didn't tell anybody what they saw for a little while. Um, but my hope is that maybe with some imaginative um, life kind of direction and imaginative prayer, maybe even if we're having to be quiet about those things right now. Maybe it's not the time to speak about what God might be doing in your imagination, but there will be a time to speak about it, and there will be a time to bring it to life, to create it. And so my hope for us is that we not only be a people of prayer, um, but a people listening in prayer, imagining what God might be saying in their lives, that we might be honest with God in those conversations, and that we might even just be courageous enough to go off script, not just living life as usual or doing business as usual, but seeking to bring God's liberating love into new situations, uh, into our own lives and the lives of those around us. And so that's my hope for our community.